Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice, and certainly encourage all of you to practice good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today, we're talking about bone graft substitutes, a type of implant that can lead to a lot of confusion among purchasers and providers because of all of the varieties available. We'll describe some common misconceptions and steps organizations can take to improve safety and purchasing procedures. To get us started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Jillian Hellman. I have a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering and a PhD in bioengineering. My research experience is in biomaterials, tissue engineering, drug delivery, and regenerative medicine. I've been at ECRI for a little over three years. I work in the device evaluation group, and I support the cross-check program, specifically looking at implants and biologics. And my name is Christina Sibulars, and I'm a manager at ECRI with a background in supply chain, and I've been working at ECRI for a little over eight years. So let's start uh, by defining some basics around bone graft substitutes, and, and I mean really basics. Uh, what are they, <laughs> and, and what kind of procedures are they used in? Sure. So the bone graft substitutes are used to facilitate healing in the body, healing of the bone. Um, that could be healing of an injury or a trauma or maybe some surgical repair or really any bone void that needs to be healed. Um, they can be made from a variety of components. Um, they're aimed to mimic the natural healing process. So some bones like a fracture, a small fracture may heal itself. Um, but when we're looking at bone graft substitutes, these are bone wounds or bone injuries that can heal themselves. And the gold standard really is an autograft, which you take bone from another part of the body and place it in the bone void. These are often not readily available. Um, there might be poor tissue avail um, available for the patient, and it's also another procedure, so it's causing more trauma in the body. So when an autograft, which contains living cells, it has signals that direct bone formation, provide structural support, when that's not available, bone graft substitutes can be used and they try to mimic the same thing that the autograft uh, has. So they usually com uh, are comprised of a structural support component and these are usually cheap and readily available. So most bone graft substitutes, if not all, will have some sort of structural support component. And these could be calcium based or calcium derived. Um, or more often, they are allograft-based. So an allograft comes from other human tissue, maybe cadaver tissue or donor tissue. And um, in this instance, the allograft is, the cells are removed and the material is weakened and often combined with other materials to form the bone graft substitutes. And sometimes the signal, it's, the signals in the natural bone remain in the material. Uh, sometimes they don't and you can artificially add back in the signals. That becomes very expensive, and there's currently only one product on the market that does that, but it is possible. You can also put cells back in, also becomes very expensive with the goal of increasing the bone healing response. 
Uh, some examples of specific procedures are non-healing fractures, trauma repair, spinal fusion, tumor surgery, tumor surgery where they're taking out a bone tumor and they want to replace it with fresh bone or they want to regrow bone. Um, and there are many other procedures as well. So when you say, you mentioned signals, you can artificially add signals or maybe signals in the natural bone remain. What is a signal? <laughs> These are large biomolecules. You might have heard them referred to as growth factors. There are specific mm. growth factors in the body that do all sorts of things. So there's one specific for making bone grow and you can, you can make them in the lab and add them into your allograft material. They are naturally occurring at a much lower concentration. Um, but if you wanna increase the signal, you would increase the amount or the concentration of the growth factor in the material. And that's where you mentioned adding these artificially can really drive up the price and there's only the one product right now that's doing that. Correct. Gotcha. Okay. So how often are bone graft substitutes used uh, in hospitals? And I don't mean, you know, like a, an actual numeric number, but uh, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of, is this something that's used, you know, all day, every day in big hospitals, or is this used eh, a couple times a year we break one of these out? That's very dependent on the facility and their possible specialty. Um, and I'll, I'll let Jillian elaborate that on that a little bit more. But looking at the spend, uh, we've got over 500 million in yearly spend submitted to ECRI on these products. And that's about an average of 42 million in spend a month. So you can see that, you know, it's a, a fair amount of um, hospital spend associated with these products. And when you say spend, that means that that's literally what the hospital is, is that's what they're paying to acquire it from a, a manufacturer. As far as how often these are performed, uh, as Christina says, it really does depend on the facility and what their specialty may be. Um, if you're looking at spinal fusion, that's something that's done very often. You might be doing it daily at your facility, or maybe there's one day per week that you've designated for spinal fusion, whereas the other procedures might be a lot less frequent. You know, Christina, you mentioned the spend, and, and, um, and we talked earlier about how, you know, with, with um, the artificially adding the signals to them, that can really drive up the price. There's one product on the market that, that has that. So if I'm involved in purchasing bone graft substitutes for my hospital, is this the kind of situation where I have, you know, a lot of choices on the market to choose from, or, or am I really only choosing from, from a small handful of, of products on the market? So when I say that there are many options, I would say that that's an understatement. Uh, okay. We're talking over 500 different product lines in this space. Wow. Um, and this represents over 2,300 different items. Um, and that's from 62 different manufacturers. So obviously all of these choices can add to the confusion and the misunderstanding of these products. That, that's a lot, right? That, that's a really big number. And if I'm purchasing I mean, I guess I'm, I'm thinking, how do I begin to understand that and, and what differentiates one product from another? So I would say the main differentiator um, when you're looking to purchase a product really should be the indication because you don't want to use something that's off-label. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean a product is different from another product. It just means it's been tested in that space. Um, so you want to look at what it's indicated for and what procedure you're actually performing. Um, and then you can get into a little bit more specifics about what the makes up the product and how they might be different. So the first thing I can think of is the form. Is it a putty, a powder, a solid? Is it injectable? Do you need to inject it? Are you using it perhaps in a laparoscopic surgery? You have to make sure it fits your needs. If you're trying to fill a space that's not a uniform space, you can't really use a preformed solid to fill that. 
Um, mm -hmm. You're probably going to use something that's a little more amorphous. Um, and then you can get into the specific components. I spoke a little bit about how they're either allograft-based or calcium-based. Some may have a combination of both. If they are allograft-based, it could come from uh, another human, as I mentioned. There are, xenograft, there are a few xenograft products that come from an animal. Um, they could be mineralized, which means they're in their native form. Bone is hard and has a lot of mineral in it. Or they could be demineralized, which a lot of people know as DBM, demineralized bone matrix. Um, and sometimes that's known as a whole category of its own when you talk about supply chain and purchasing of medical products. Um, and then also it might be dependent on what type of bone you're looking at. There's, you know, long bone, cancellous bone, cortical bone, um, and that might be important to a purchaser. If it's calcium-based, there's the source of the calcium, what type of calcium it is. And then also, as I mentioned, some may have cells in them and they might have different types of cells and they might be more specific to one um, action in the body than others. You can also use a product with the patient's own cells by taking bone marrow aspirate. Uh, some are indicated specifically for that, some are not. Um, so that's another place you can look as far as the differences. You also wanna pay attention to how they're regulated so um, some are regulated by a 510K process, which is overseen by the FDA. And this regulates the approval of medical devices. So uh, 510K specifically looks at medical devices that are similar to already approved medical devices. So they are compared to a predicate device. And these are typically class two medical devices, which bone graft substitutes are. Uh, however, Allograft materials are not regulated by 510K because they fall under minimally processed tissues and or cells. And this falls under the human cells, tissue, and cellular and tissue-based product um, indication under the FDA. And this is HT, I'm sorry, HCT slash P. And in this case, they are treated a little bit like a transplant in that they're so minimally processed you don't need to prove anything um, to the FDA to show that what they are because you're really just taking bone and putting it into the body in the same way that you would as a transplant. Mm. Um, so while a 510K needs to be approved for a specific indication and, and has specific claims associated with that, the HTTP products really just have suggestions. Um, so you really wanna pay attention to that when you are making your decisions. Um, so without this 510K approval, it is a little bit more difficult to regulate those indications. So it sounds like, you know, a big part of that differentiation and, and sort of a part of that selection process is going to be based on what we talked about earlier. What kind of procedures are you running in your organization? That's going to have some influence because you want to look obviously at products that, that are approved for those indications that have been tested for those indications. That's going to influence how you make these decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so but, but even setting indication aside, I guess, are there situations where, um, where you would want one type of substitute over another? And I guess the other way of asking that question is, you know, what could be some of the consequences to patients if I, you know, select quote unquote, the wrong substitute for the job? Sure. So the number one thing is using a product off-label. Um, ECRI obviously does not recommend that. Um, and off-label could mean, you know, you're looking at some are approved as a bone graft filler or a bone graft extender. A bone graft filler means it can be the only material that you're putting in the space that you'd like to heal, whereas a bone graft extender means that you're adding it in addition to an autograft. 
So you want to pay attention to that because a bone graph extender may not have the necessary components to completely fill the void or to completely heal the bone. Um, you also want to pay attention to where in the body you're putting it. So specific places you want to focus, spinal, um, when you are reconstruct reconstructing spine tissue or spine bone the bones of your spine, there are other very important structures nearby, like your spinal cord. And you wanna make sure that your bone's not growing into that space. Um, so whereas in other parts of the body, you have a little extra bone growth, maybe not what you wanted, not gonna to cause too much harm. In the spine, that's very important. So if you choose the wrong bone graft substitute to place in the spine, that could be very detrimental. Um, you also want to pay attention to if the bone that you're putting the bone graft substitute into is weight-bearing. So if the patient needs to use that bone right away post-procedure, uh, it needs to have the structural uh, capacity that is necessary to bear weight. If you're going to put in a bone that does not bear weight, then maybe there's a little less of a need for the structural component to be there. Um, in general, DBM, or that demineralized bone matrix I spoke about earlier, is better when combined with autograft, mineralized bone, or bone marrow aspirate. So alone, it's probably not the best choice in any situation. However, specifically in spinal and trauma surgery, that's when it's best combined with one of those other materials that I spoke about. Uh, the calcium-based products are fragile, and they have poor mechanical strength. So going back to that weight-bearing uh, example, um, they might not be the best choice alone for those procedures. You might want to combine them with something. They vary greatly in porosity and the mechanical and compressive and tensile strength necessary for those weight-bearing applications. Um, so maybe they're better as bone graph extenders. So the consequences that you might see kind of sum up everything I just said is if it doesn't provide the mechanical strength in a load-bearing situation, you're gonna be in trouble. If it's not porous enough or doesn't degrade fast enough, you're not gonna get enough remodeling in the space, you might be in some trouble. And if the growth is too active and can compress neighboring anatomy, as I spoke about in the spine, again, you might get yourself in a little bit of trouble there. So with all those options, um you know, in this space, and I think, Christina, you said there's something like over 400 of, over 500 of them available. You know, how widely does the price vary and, and what can contribute to that variability if there is any? The price of these products varies so greatly just from product line to product line. Uh, we see a reported price at the each level varying from $42 to upwards of $11,000. Wow. Um, and it can be difficult to compare and contrast these items due to a few factors. Um, this can include the varied methods of identifying size of a bone graft. Uh, some are measured in dimensions, others in weight, um, others in volume. So it's really hard to get down to that true um, price comparison. Tissue source can also affect the price. Human source is obviously the most expensive. Other factors include if there's um, any added growth factor, like the uh, one of the, the main lines that's purchased. Storage type, if it needs to be refrigerated or not. Um, and shipping method needed due to refrigeration being needed or not. And then we always have um, the, the physician preference. And what does that mean, physician preference? So some physicians have a preference on what uh, types they like to use or specific manufacturers they like to work with. So they can come into an organization and have a specific product line that uh, they might be very inclined to support and move forward with. So if you think about that, you know, one 
physician, that's fine. But if you've got 10 different physicians using these products, each physician has a different preference. That's 10 different items that you're having to support. So it, it can be difficult just to manage all of those preferences. Sure. No, that makes sense. So, you know, when we talked uh, before we started recording, we talked a little bit about the bone graft substitutes. You guys gave me a little bit of a thumbnail sketch. And you told me that there are some real common misconceptions around, <clears throat> around the substitutes. Can you pick a couple of them and help us debunk them? Yes, I'd, I'd love to. I love this question. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about is the difference between osteogenic and osteogenic potential. So by definition, osteogenic means that it contains cells. It contains cells either that will become bone or already are bone cells. Um, very few products have, or very, relatively very few products have cells. There are much more without cells. Uh, however, marketing of these products tends to use the word osteogenic potential. And sometimes that's misleading because that doesn't, does not mean that it has cells in the product itself. It means that it has the ability maybe to recruit the cells or it has been shown to recruit cells or it has been shown to produce a material or a tissue that contains bone cells. So I think that word potential really can deceive someone sometimes. Um, the other thing I wanna talk about is osteoinduction. So that by definition means that it contributes to a stem cell changing into a bone cell. So typically what happens during the healing process is stem cells are recruited to a site of injury and the signals there, this, it's part of the natural healing process, the signals there cause the stem cells to differentiate or to change into bone cells. And this is typically caused by what we spoke about earlier, a biomolecule or a growth factor, more commonly known. And these can be present in the material themselves. Um, they're present in an autograph, they're present in an, al in an allograft, um, or they could be added as we, we talked about with that one product. Um, these are in great, diff greatly different concentrations depending on how the material or the product is prepared. So in the case where the product adds the growth factor, it's at a very, very high concentration. In the case where it's, it's bone tissue that has been processed, either it's your own bone tissue or it's allograft bone tissue, um, there still can be or may be growth factor in the tissue. It's sometimes difficult to determine at what concentration or how active they are. So we talked about how the tissue can be demineralized and that in that instance, you lose some of the structural integrity of the material. You're taking away that hard mineral, but you make some of these signals a little more available. So just because a product is osteoinductive, um, they could be at much different levels depending on how the, the product is prepared. Um, so um, one product might say, oh, we have this concentration of a specific growth factor. And another product might not state that, but that's just more likely because they haven't tested it. If, it's, if, they're, if we're comparing two allograft products. Um, also, just because it's contained within the material doesn't mean it's necessarily bioavailable, which means that when you put it in, it, it might not be available to the cells to actually signal because it might be hidden behind some mineral. So you really want to be careful that you're not too persuaded by marketing that claims that a product is osteoconductive um, because all allograft material will have growth factors to some extent in it. And without true side-by-side -side comparison studies, it's really hard to say which one has the right concentration. 
Gotcha. Well, don't be too persuaded by marketing. It's probably always <laughs> yes. pretty good advice. So <clears throat> if I'm in a hospital and I'm, again, I'm in, I'm in the involved in purchasing the substitutes, um, you know, where do I get started? Uh, obviously, I, I don't think that I can fix the entire manufacturing and supply chain situation this afternoon. Um, but what can I do this afternoon to start, uh, to, if I need to, to start trying to clean some things up in our purchasing? Absolutely. I know this, this category of products can seem overwhelming. Um, so I would suggest you just start by asking some questions. So for your organization, you know, how many different products are you currently buying? Um, what procedures are those products being used for? And if you're seeing some redundancies, are you then able to standardize and consolidate some of those products? Ultimately, you want to rely on unbiased data and collaborate not only within your organization, but externally so that you can compare the product pricing, functionality, and usage in order to achieve your organization's objectives. All right, Jillian, Christina, thanks so much. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find information about membership programs that include pricing, functional equivalents, and product level details for bone graft substitutes and hundreds of other types of devices. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.